は、ウルフェドです。お名前は何ですかこんにちは。CTC と申します。Welcome everyone. It's actually an interesting coincidence that after the previous interview with Nick Mishkin, who talked about the impact of future language on investing and savings outcomes, we've managed to find someone in Japan who's willing to come and speak with us today. There's actually a few themes here that are coming together in one episode. So there's the featured language. There's also the fact that a lot of value investors often talk about Japan as a source of good ideas. So it'd be nice to go through some of the, the small cap, especially value ideas that you have, CTC. And also, another thing that's come up if you follow our account, there's been a bit of ranting lately about ergodicity economics, especially the farmer's fable from Mark Ellsberg about how if you Have two people with similar capacities to generate an economic outcome, but the processes that are used to generate those outcomes are not correlated. So, if they're farmers on two different sides of a country, or investors in two different countries, or a team of blackjack players who are pooling and then sharing the outcomes of their gambling, the outcome for the cooperative is better. Even in the long term, than the luckiest,、uh, highest performing member of that cooperative. So here we have、uh, someone, myself in、uh, Bristol, the UK, Ben in, in Brisbane, and CTC. So this is uh, a, a, an opportunity perhaps for a pooling and sharing, at least of ideas. So、uh, without further ado,、uh, welcome CTC. Perhaps we could have some commentary from you about how things look from your side actually in Japan as an investor and if it, if it actually stacks up for someone there,、uh, what people say about Japan being a good place to invest. All right. Well,、uh, thank you, Ben and Will, for having me on your podcast.、Uh, I've only done this、uh, one before I was on a podcast. So this is、uh, still something very new, new to me. But I'll just talk about the Japanese stock market in general, I think for one, is the Japanese stock market is, is definitely a, a, a value market.、Uh, there's, there's many, many, many cheap, cheap stocks here. According to uh, uh, different figures, I believe about half of all Japanese stocks are, are below their、uh, price booking ratio.、Uh, so just many stocks. And, and to add to that,、uh, about 50% or more, depending on which figures you look at, about half of all Japanese stocks are also net cash. So, there's just many, many stocks、uh, in a market of over 3,000 companies where just many companies are trading below their book values and have lots of cash on their balance sheets. So, it's, it's, it's sort of a very kind of very irregular and irrationally priced market. So, if you're a value investor, there's many appealing markets, I think, in emerging markets and in、uh, Eastern Europe, I think in Africa, Russia. There's many appealing markets, but for a developed country, the Japanese stock market's very cheap. And it, it will definitely comes up, I think, for any value investor if they do any type of stock screen that they find many stocks are, are in Japan. So if you are an investor looking for bargains, there's just so many opportunities here in Japan. It's, it's quite incredible, I think. Do you have any understanding of why Japan might be? So, unique in that way?、Uh, is there some cultural、uh, reason or is there some past experience that they've gone through? We know, we know about the, the Japanese bubble that burst back in, I think it was the late 80s. But do you have any reason why there's so much value in the Japanese market? 
Yeah, I, I think for one is that there's very little attention paid uh, to the Japanese market. I mean, everyone knows about the uh, huge Japanese stock market bubble uh, that burst in, in the late, late 80s, where the Japanese market had a CAPE ratio of over 100. So since then, is people have just seen, well, Japan is the market that went bust. You know, what, why would you want to buy uh, Japanese stocks? And if you look at the Nikkei returns, we're just now getting a uh, 30-year uh, stock market level high. So we're, we're back at the uh, level where the Nikkei was at 30 years ago. So you still have not reached the bubble market at its peak high. Uh, if you look at different measurements, though, if you look at like the Nikkei 500 index, actually the Japanese stock market has surpassed its high and is now kind of hovering below that level. And if you look at Japanese stocks trading on a yen basis, it's also surpassed the bubble market high. But in general, I think a lot of people, they're not really paying much attention to the Japanese stock market. Uh, they don't think there's many good companies here. And it's also true that a lot of Japanese uh, stocks, I think, historically have not really paid much attention to creating value for their investors. And also many stocks here, because they have such huge cash levels, have very low ROEs. So that's also something that keeps people away. But if you're looking for a market where there are companies that have very good solid balance sheets that are trading below their book value, increasing their return on equities, uh, raising their dividends and paying more in share buybacks, Japan is, a, is an attractive market. Yeah. And there are companies, despite the bubble, that have surpassed their bubble market peaks since then. So there are parts of the market that have done well. And it's very interesting. If you look at small cap value in the Japanese market, Actually, in the past 30 years, it's performed at a level similar to the SP 500. So not everything in the Japanese stock market is, is certainly dead. And if you look at how Japanese stocks have done in the past 10 or so years, the returns are similar to the Dow or the SP 500. So they have not been very bad if you have invested in the stock market in the past 10 or so years. Basically being a bull market in the West over a similar period. But it was, so was that small cap value, especially that had performed well in the past 10 years, or was that since the crash? I believe if you look at returns since uh, about 1990, small cap value has performed similarly, right? And yeah, the overall bull market has been true for, you know, uh, global equities, not just the Japanese stock market. So it's performed similarly to other stock markets in, in the past 10 years where things have been good for many stock markets. But if you look at the valuations and the similar returns for ten, the past 10 or so years, it can be a good argument for investing in Japan. And perhaps one criticism or, or one benefit, depending on how you look at it, is that in some ways the, the Nikkei index mirrors the performance of the Dow in some ways, but at, at a cheaper valuation. So that can be a benefit in some ways too. Very true. And as you say, you can look at some well-known uh, Japanese companies. We were just a week or two ago looking at Nintendo. Their cash is more than double total liabilities of the company, which is quite amazing. Absolutely. It's, I mean, Nintendo's a good example, but you know, there's, there's many companies in Japan where it's, it's kind of really insane, where they have their entire market cap value, in some cases, equal in cash, you know, having negative enterprise values. It's, 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 I, it's hard to say like where else uh, and what other stock market you can see where stocks are just so uh, mispriced, you would think. Yeah. 
This is a perfect reflection of the futured language issue that Nick mentioned in the last episode, and also what Keith Chen mentioned in his TED talk, that countries like Japan without futured languages save at a 5% faster rate, and people who are running businesses, they're even more financially aware, so maybe that phenomenon is even stronger. It's really interesting to see. But I guess one thing to mention is at least the way that Ben and I have been trained to do value investing analyses is to deduct the cash and cash equivalents when you're doing the return on capital employed assessment, or at least to look at it both ways, so with and without cash, both at the end and at the beginning of the period. So there's four different angles to look at things from. So I guess when you're in the version without the cash, perhaps the return on capital employed will be higher. But yeah, that's definitely something to bear in mind. I guess another, what's the inflation rate been in Japan in the past five, 10 years? Well, I mean, it, since uh, I think uh, the pandemic and, and Corona, you've seen some prices for, for some goods. If you go to the uh, grocery store, it, it always seems like fruits and vegetables are, are, are getting more expensive. And then you have, you know, the odd stealth infl- inflation where things are the price the same, but the, the volume and the package, you know, th- this, this is like, true in a lot yeah. of places, but you see that in Japan as well. But I mean, in general... Uh, so many things in Japan, their, their prices are flat and inflation right. is, is very low. If you look at the CPI okay. in Japan, it's, it's, it, it really hasn't budged much in the past, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years. If you look at wages in Japan, they've actually declined. Or actually, if you look at uh, new entry level employees for people getting their first job out of, you know, university, it's, it's basically the same level since the 1990s. It hasn't really budged much. But this is also true where uh, rent in many areas of Japan, um, in some areas, uh, uh, living costs have increased. But um, in a lot of areas of Japan, uh, the rent is is really hasn't moved much. And as a matter of fact, mm. houses in Japan, they, they haven't really uh, gone up in value as well. Mm. I mean, and if you get a, a loan, uh, I myself, I, I purchased a home a while ago. And my interest is less than 1%. I know people in Japan that have bought homes for, you know, 0.23% interest rates. It's just really something that is hard to imagine, I think, in the West. Yeah. Yeah. I asked that because other parts of our framework are referenced to inflation. So the growth rate of free cash flow, operating income, book value, and tangible book value, we've been taught to make sure they're at least keeping up with inflation, maybe a bit outpacing it. So the, the standard for us is 4%. But at this, and uh, also we're looking for a return on capital employed of 15% or more, uh, return on capital employed in terms of free cash flow as 8% or more. But all of those things are referenced against inflation. So to me, I reckon maybe you could go for ROC of 10%. Um, given the, the lower inflation or, or zero inflation basically there. I, I also thought maybe for, for people who are not so au fait with investing terms, you, you mentioned at, at the start that the ratio between, was it market cap and uh, book value is around about equal for a lot of Japanese stocks? Oh, yeah, correct? yeah. So not for every that... Japanese stock, but of course, but, uh, but uh, half of all... Uh you know, Japanese stocks are net cash. And then you have stocks that, you know, their, their enterprise value where they have cash 
on their balance sheets equal to their their market cap, um, which is right quite peculiar. Um, that, so that basically means that if someone managed to buy all the shares of this business via the stock market, they would have the same amount in the bank account of the business. So it just makes me wonder, because that's like classic for Benjamin Graham style, like what it makes me wonder why some rich, you know, <laughs> um, investor or businessman from overseas hasn't come in and bought half the Japanese market. So what, what could turn the myth or change the myth that is putting a cap on expectations? We had the Olympics recently. What are some other stories that are going to... Uh, liberate people's imagination. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very strange where you can have companies where it seems like if you just bought them outright, you're, you're getting them for free. But um, inevitably, the, some of the big barriers in Japan, I think, have, are, are constant. One is that um, there doesn't seem to be always for many companies concern in creating any value for shareholders the catalyst for many companies that might have a lot of cash is unclear. Uh, so what, if you were to buy it or if you were to own a bunch of shares of a company that has its entire market cap in cash, I mean, what, what type of value can you expect? What, what would move the needle to make that company decide to put that, that cash to work? And it's, it's unclear for many companies. And it's, I think, what contributes to the Japanese market staying perpetually cheap. So if, if I were an investor, uh, I wouldn't just want to buy every company that has all of its market cap and cash, but maybe a company that has already demonstrated some willingness to doing share buybacks, to, to increasing its dividends, or during the uh, pandemic where many companies cut their, their dividends, that they kept it unchanged. That, that's a good sign. It's another barrier, I think, for people where uh, many of these companies, if you look at their IR report, they don't have an English page. It's, it's all in Japanese. So the language barrier is part of it. And also the Japanese language itself is vague. So even if you look at, oh, the company and their IR page, if it's in Japanese, but if you were to translate it into English, that, that's easier to do now with many translation tools. Uh, it's, it's, it might be very vague. Here's all the things we plan on doing in the future, but not giving maybe very many concrete plans of what they plan on doing. So it's really tricky for value investors. And, and, and that's why I would say that trying to put all your eggs in one basket in one or two companies isn't really good. It, it's probably not the best value to, unless I think if you could buy a bunch of shares and put yourself on the board where you can influence your decisions, I think for many people in Japan, the basket, I think investing approach is better if you own many different companies without expecting like an immediate catalyst, but you just kind of sit and wait. Japan is a good market for that. What are the dividends on that? I know it's a, it's a broad question, but in terms of dividend yields, um, do you find that Japan's higher than the US? I know the US companies, you know, it's okay if you get one or 2%. There's some companies here in Australia as well, like the banks used to pay quite significant dividend yields, somewhere in the order of 6 or 7%, depending on when you got them. Do you have any general information about that? Yeah, I believe I've seen some figures a while ago where the dividend yield for the Nikkei index was higher than the Dow. I'm not quite sure, but 
of course, you know, Japan's a big market with, you know, 3000 companies. So, you know, among all those companies, you know, it's encouraging to see that if you look at in the past decade, dividends and share buybacks are, are on the rise in the past 10 years. So if you're a dividend investor, like I am, you can buy many stocks at a good price and many stocks that have lots of cash on their balance sheets, mm-hmm. stocks that haven't cut their dividend yields during the very difficult year we had in, in 2020, and, and companies that are healthy cash flows and improving their dividend yields. So it's all encouraging signs. And if you're looking at inflation, it is beneficial if you're a Japanese investor, if you live here or have assets here, because you know even a 1% or 2% dividend yield, actually, you're already basically beating inflation. So that's not true if you're an international investor, but if you live here, it's like, well, the downside doesn't seem as, as great when you have stocks with such big cash balances and that are trading so cheap and are already beating inflation with their dividend yields. What's the bear case not to invest in Japan? Is it simply, you mentioned a couple of points. One, they're not so much shareholder friendly and there seems to be a lack of motivation to perform outsized profits or to innovate the company, for example. Is, am I summarizing you correctly? And is there anything else that you want to add to that? That's about right. The bear case is that you own a bunch of value stocks in Japan that just the needle doesn't move. They don't give you much more value. That's basically it. But also the Japanese economy, if it, if it were to get significantly worse in, in, in some way. But even in the past 30 years where Japan was, they call it the, the last decade or decades, depending on where you look, where the standard of living in Japan didn't change very much. It's been uh, basically the same quality of life where, uh, and where in other countries, cost of living has gone up you know, rapidly every year. So things are quite stable here. Um, I think it, for a lot of these stocks that are so cheap, the biggest, I think, risk is just opportunity cost, where that money that you put into these very deep value stocks could have been employed better elsewhere that would give you better returns over that time. That, that is a big, big risk for many, I think, Japanese stocks that are very cheap. What about um, the Japanese population? And I know it's famous in the sense that it's an aging population and it's also a shrinking population. I think they're already past their peak population level five or 10 years ago, perhaps. Do you think that is also going to be a problem going forward? Yeah, this, this is a, a point that many people bring up as well about Japan's population where it, I think it peaked a few years ago and has been in, in decline. And so what that means for the Japanese economy and, and its equities, how that will play out. But my basic view on that is a couple things. I think for one is that it's it's very difficult to make a strong prediction going into 30, 40, 50, even 100 years about demographics. Right now, the population is decreasing because there are many old people and the birth rate has declined compared to the past. But I mean, that, that can, that's also a, a, a trend that it's hard, I think, to, to assume that just continues indefinitely. Um, actually, I think around uh, 2060, so again, this is, it's hard to make a prediction, you know, that dem- about demographics that far in the future, but Japan's older population will start to sort of taper off and stabilize. And then the proportion of older people, which will peak, I think around 
40% of the population will start to decline as a proportion of the population. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And also immigration, where Japan has been seen as a country that's adverse to immigration. But I think anyone in any Japanese city can tell you how quietly Japan has actually had many immigrants become a fact of life here. If you go to any Japanese convenience store now, most major cities, you can see foreigners working there in their convenience stores and restaurants and the service industry and as students at its universities. So a lot of changes have happened actually among immigrants coming to Japan, although they don't really call them immigrants. But as it is in many countries, when you bring people to your country, inevitably many end up staying. So that's another way of looking at it. Just wanted to to just highlight how there's so there's two myths that you have uh, essentially retired in the past ten minutes. There's the one that the Japanese market is stagnating and not going anywhere. You said it's like the Western markets has gone up in the past ten years at about the same pace, and immigrants it sounds like are, are a common sight in Japan. And when you were talking about how house loans are less than 0.5 percent. That immediately made me think, well, suddenly all the younger people that haven't bought a house now want to move to Japan and buy a house. So I reckon that's three ways that the myth can be retired. And yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that Japanese market stays so cheap is that it often feels like Japan is just very uh, misunderstood by people outside the country. I think there's a bunch of reasons, but one is uh International reporting about Japan doesn't, from what I have often seen, is, is not very well done. Is it, The type of things they report about are, are not necessarily uh, true, or there's more to the story that isn't really explained. And also the type of stories that trend about Japan is, is usually more about how everything here is a lot more worse than it really is, or it's some type of doomsday scenario. But another thing I want to point out, though, is that going on to demographics and the future of the market is, you know, Japanese companies themselves in the past decade and in two or three decades actually have expanded more overseas. Uh, so about 40% of, of, I think most Japanese companies, they do their sales abroad. So demographics within Japan for company profits, you know, isn't as I think as big of an issue when you have companies that are expanding abroad, they, move their production overseas, and they hire foreign employees. And if you go to many Asian markets uh, in China and Southeast Asia, and also in parts of the U.S., there, there are big Japanese plants where there are Japanese companies doing major businesses there. Yeah. I was just thinking, it's not only Japan that's had these sorts of catastrophic drops that have taken a long time to see a recovery. Australia only post the COVID rebound went above the market peak from the financial crisis. So a shorter timescale, but still no less catastrophic. These sorts of things happen in other places. Right, right. So it, it's not necessarily only the Japanese stock market that hasn't surpassed its historic peak. It's, it's true in other markets as well. And, and it's also true in, in other countries as well about when people talk about demographics. Japan's not the only country in the world, of course, where there are more older people and, and birth rates have declined. I saw, in the, I think it was this year, actually, a COVID was a big catalyst, but the U.S. has the largest decrease in its birth rate, I think, in, in a century. So it's, it's definitely not unique to, 
to Japan only. And it's, I think in some ways, Japan will be in a unique position where the world will see how you cope with having a large number of seniors and support an elderly population and be able to still have many companies that can stay profitable. It'll be a, a, maybe a, a testing ground for many people to see. It'll be very interesting, I think, in the next couple decades to watch. Yeah, no, similar questions come up for investors in Australia. The first business that springs to mind is old folks' homes or retirement homes. So tell us a bit about how life is as an older person in Japan, where you live, what you should expect in terms of quality of life and whether it changes much as an older person who's no longer working. Yeah, this is a, a, an interesting uh, thing to bring up is because it's, it's quite visible to see how many uh, old people in Japan are still working. And I think in, in, in some ways it's because they, they have to work. This, this is a reality too now where people live longer and they work longer. So, so that's an argument where uh, people talk about older populations and, and the burden on social security systems and, and public pensions is that now older people live longer, therefore their working life is, is longer. And if you go to many places in Japan, one thing you see is how many old people seem to be out and about and working. So that's, that's a big thing. But uh, another thing too, is I think older people and retirement homes, that's, that's a big uh, growing industry in Japan as well. Um, so that's, that's a, perhaps a niche market for people to look at. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing to see is also historically too, it, this is true in I think a lot of cultures where in the past, uh, old, older people were generally just taken care of by their families. You know, that you had multi-generational households. So Japan, like I think in Western countries has become more of the nuclear family model. So it's also kind of a generational change where older people now are more living on their own and living in retirement homes. And, and so that's a, a test case to see in Japan of how uh, you take care of a, so, such a big proportion of your population that has gotten older, but also sort of encouraging to work longer because you want more people working and paying taxes and, and paying into the public pensions as well. I'm sure when most listeners think of Japan and investing in Japan, they think of Japanese car companies, some of the Japanese entertainment companies. So what I mean by that is Sony and Panasonic and Nintendo, which I mentioned before. Do you know of any Japanese companies that you think are well performers that um, people wouldn't have heard of? Yeah, I think that that's the other uh, thing is that many Japanese companies that are profitable that people have not heard of. They only know about Nintendo and, and Toyota and Sony, but Japan has over 3,000 companies. It's just likely that many people have not heard of many of its very good world top-class companies. Uh, so a, a lot of Japanese companies, they, they've moved into, especially smaller, mid-sized companies, they, they've moved into more niche manufacturing. So they no longer make all the electronics, but they make many of the, the parts that go into the electronics. So so although now a lot of uh, uh, electronics, it seems like it comes from South Korea or China or Taiwan, where a lot of Japanese companies are still very heavily involved into all the parts that make those products. And, and also there, there are many Japanese companies, this is one of my personal favorites, not to, to plug my own portfolio, but Japan's big trading companies, the biggest by market cap is Itochu, 
which many people I think have never heard of, but they probably have heard of a Mitsubishi Corporation, which is a rival of Itochu. So they probably have an idea about that. And Mitsubishi Corporation and Itochu and the other major Japanese trading companies, they do every type of business you can imagine. They have thousands of subsidiaries. They have thousands of networks and partnerships. They, they do agriculture, uh, agribusiness, energy, uh, electronics, real estate, you know, all, all around the world. It's, it's quite interesting if you look at the IR pages of these companies, it, you can just see all the types of businesses they do all around the world. And, and these are companies that are major large cap companies that likely many people outside of Japan are not at all familiar with. Yeah, I remember last year, Warren Buffett bought 5% of a few of the top ones. Usually in Japan, if you have more than 5%, there's more reporting requirements, or in some cases for foreign investors, there's some regulations that they may have to deal with depending on the company. That's one thing that will be interesting to see if Buffett increases his holdings in those companies. But for me, it was very interesting to watch when he purchased those five companies. So there are Itochu, Mitsubishi, Mitsui, Sumitomo, and Marubeni. Those are the five, in case I left out one. But those I'm are the big. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> those are the big. Those are the big five. But um, I, I happen to own all, all five of them. And before Buffett made his big news that these trading companies with very good cash flows and good yields that beat inflation and uh, have many partnerships and and are all below their price booking ratios. Uh, I had already been long these companies because I thought, you know, these, these are really good companies. And I think at some point people will realize that these companies like this have value. And, and sure enough, Buffett made his purchase. And I thought, all right, I feel validated that my thesis for at least yeah. these five companies was, was correct. Yeah. <laughs> do you only invest in Japan, but then regardless of whether you do or not, what's your approach to finding companies to use? stock screener or do you just randomly select companies? I run two portfolios. One, I just automate, do a world index fund, Dow index, SP 500 index. And I, I just, I just stick to that. There's it's, it's my, it's my sort of autopilot portfolio. I just make sure to add to it, you know, every, every few months, I don't think about it, but the stock picking I do is just in the Japanese market. I use a Japanese stock screener. I mean, there, there are many ones in English too, but there's one I like called Buffett Code. I've talked about on Twitter a few times and it, and it seems to work well with, I think, Google Translate. You can search by sector and by PE ratio and by yield. That's one way I look. In Japan, there's often many people who are sort of like maniacs where they have a blog in Japanese that's very like obscure and very detailed about one particular hobby. So usually after I narrow down a list of stocks I'm interested in based on a stock screener, I'll just Google the stock name in Japanese. And inevitably, in many cases, I will find someone already have done a lot of research on it in Japanese. So if you speak Japanese, if you can read it, that helps. Even for someone who wants to use a translation tool, I would recommend the same approach is that search for the company name in Japanese. And you can often find someone who's already done your work for you, where they've gone through the balance sheet, they've gone through the, the assets that the company has, the returns of it, what they think of the management. Kind of amazing how there's so many people in Japan who just blog in Japanese, very detailed 
about something. And if you just search in English, then yeah, you, you won't find much. But if you search for it in Japanese, you can often find a lot of information. Yeah. I'd love to know what their frameworks are, what Ben and I apply as classic, maybe Columbia Business School essentially is the origin of most of our ideas, you'd say. But is there a, a famous business school in Japan that's the source of a lot of investing thought? Yeah, I mean, there. of course, Japan has its, its big name investors. But I think what's sort of peculiar about the Japanese market is that its retail investor space is very small. You know, only about 17% of the Japanese market is retail investors. So it's you can follow the big names. There's big Japanese investors, but uh, the retail investors, it's small, but you have a lot of people, If I think if they're going out of their way to, to invest, where that's already an unusual thing to do in Japan, where people are very risk averse. So you're looking at a segment of a segment of a segment, and then you start getting people that are just very like detail-oriented kind of maniacs, and they they've gone through the entire balance sheet of some company and they've done some analysis. And hey, I did know. it for twenty years of Nintendo myself. <laughs> right, right. So I mean, everyone can relate to this. The it's like, <laughs> like like the Michael Burry, right, going through this, and, right. and these are just regular people on on the internet. Who who knows what they are? But but I mean, that's just one way. I'll I'll, I'll use a stock screener, Google it, and after that, yeah, I would try to look at the the IR page and and another way again always good to see what other people say about it not just through a blog but personally I like to look at the Japanese Yahoo finance page there's a comment section and lots of people will write comments and once again many people have formed some opinion of it you can read what other people say before you make your own opinion before you do more research so it's always good to see what other people are saying about a stock and so it can be a lonely place, I think, if, if you're limited to just English. But if you look, you know, in, in Japanese, there's, there's more resources to use when you're sort of doing a stock screen and looking for good value. Yeah. So in saying that retail investors in Japan are a very rare breed, you've just put yourself in that category. So... Is there something, do, do you have a more alternative or, or liberated or uh, rebellious or radical view on the world? What is it that, about you that's made you, up, that's put you in this unique group in, in Japanese society? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. Why would anyone want to own Japanese stocks? It seems like a lot of work where you can maybe find value in another market maybe easier where there's more English involved. But, but yeah, uh, for me, I, I guess a radical view is, is perhaps, you know, that I live here. Uh, I was not born here, but I, I chose to, to move here and live here. So, so that makes me maybe a little different for one, where I have maybe an outsider and insider perspective while living here. But my encounter with Japanese stocks as well came by living here because when I first started out with investing, I did what all the books said you should do, which is just buy an index fund, which is usually, I think for a lot of people, the easiest thing and, and maybe maybe one of the best ways to invest long-term if you want to really make it easy for yourself. But for me, when I was living here and I see all these like big brand companies I became interested in knowing more about them. I just see their brands, their signs, products I use in my daily life that I now own. Some of them are in my portfolio. 
So maybe it's radical to be invested outside of the U.S. market where U.S. investors have done very well for themselves just investing in the U.S. I don't know if that investing in foreign markets is a radical view, but the returns have not been as good as they could have been if you've invested outside the U.S. But I think that it's possible we could see a mean reversion or a different type of world in the next coming decades where foreign markets may may do better in the future. I'm part Japanese myself and part American. So that gives me some maybe insight to Japanese culture where I've been around it for most of my life and, and have had the chance to travel back and forth between Japan and the U.S. before settling roots down here and having family members as well that live here. And so that's maybe influenced my worldview and has contributed to my interest and maybe given me some advantage in some ways to having a, a bilingual, bicultural background and an approach through that lens in investing. I wanted to get into some actual businesses, and it's great you brought up Marabeni, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, etc. I'd be interested if you're comfortable in whether there are any Japanese businesses that are smaller, that are value stocks that you've come across that are interesting, without this being perceived as financial advice by anybody listening. Yeah, I will say that this is the big uh, barrier and criticism for everyone in the who looks at the Japan market is the low ROE. And among the sort of Buffett, five major trading companies, I think Itochu, which is my favorite, has a ROE around 15%, so the best ROE. The average, I think, for the Japanese market is around 8 10%. So that's maybe not as great as in other markets, but that's improved, I think, in the past 10 years where it was about half that. So you have seen better ROEs. But um, not, you know, not, not to plug my portfolio, but outside of the trading companies, there are many small cap trading companies as well. You know, Japan has hundreds, thousands even of companies where their main business is basically serving as an intermediary where they have some product or specialization and they serve as basically a middleman and a vendor and they offer partnerships and networks. There's many companies doing this. And, and so another uh, small cap trading company, which I have in in my own portfolio, it's called Awa. They have, like a trading company, they have many businesses, but uh, machine tools, different businesses dealing with the trading of parts. But it's, again, a company where it has a, a decent ROE, close to the average for the Japanese market, but has half its market cap in cash and has shown it's raising its dividend. And also something that I like to see, the owners of the company, it's it's sort of a family-owned company, are top on the shareholder lists. So it's one thing it's good. Yeah, I mean, a family-owned company that has some legacy behind it where the family members, it looks like the father and his sons, they look like they're, they're the major trading uh, shareholders. They own the biggest amount of shares. They have a high stake and the performance of the company. And I feel like I can feel safe that this is a company that doesn't want to just screw it up for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a very important shareholder friendliness metric. The lack of insider ownership, particularly of Nintendo, was what held me back. So AWA, is it AWA? Yeah, um, it's EIWA uh, for anyone that's, that's, that's Googling it. I also I tweeted out my portfolio with all my listings and their stock code. Many Japanese companies, instead of using a a ticker, they use numbers, which is 
Uh, it's common in the Asian market, but it's interesting compared to, uh, I think, Western markets. But so you can find it. Well, yes, it's called EIWA. E I W A. If anyone's interested, they can see my entire portfolio. EIWA stock ticker is nine eight five seven. What percentage do the insiders own? Roughly, I, I don't have the, the the figures in front of me, but um, after. Uh, a company uh, known for called Hikari Sushing, which is uh, their company in Japan. They do many things, but one thing they, they they have done is they've bought like many value stocks all across the Japanese market. So for many companies in Japan that are, are cheap, you can often see that the, them among the top shareholder rosters. But I believe uh, the second, third, and fourth largest shareholders uh, of this company is is the father and his his family yeah. members. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of ranking, they're, they're definitely up there. Great. Yeah, on top, yes. When you're investing around the world, there are different cultures, right, and different attitudes and expectations around how much people should care about insider ownership, for example. When we were looking at Nintendo, we were, there was some discussion about whether it was just part of the culture or it, was, it wasn't expected. It, it was fine, basically, that that version of skin in the game in terms of your ranking in the shareholder roster didn't need to be a factor. But at least, you know, I, I think... Surely there's no better measure of skin in the game than your ranking in the shareholder roster. I don't know how to get around that. Okay, so Awa, and they're a trading house, you said. Yeah, a small cap one, one, you know, one among many in Japan. Yeah. yeah. Have you pinned that tweet of your portfolio or we'll just go? Uh, go I, sh- I should pin it after this podcast. Okay, well, yeah, well, well thank you very, very much. And my Twitter handle uh, is cash that check. Uh, C-H-C-H-E, that, and check, C-H-E-Q-U-E. And uh, I always have uh, DMs open if anyone is interested in talking about stocks. And uh, yeah, I enjoy uh, tweeting about the Japanese stock market. So yeah, thank you for for this uh, uh, this opportunity. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to CTC. You've shown again that Twitter is filled with conscientious uh, people who are open to a friendly discussion and um, it's wonderful to be a part of the community uh, with you. So thanks very much.